What I find most interesting about Jesus' prayer and what we're going to look at today, the theme that we're going to talk about today, is that really the ground of the whole thing, what Jesus, what Jesus asked for, and you see it in verse 11 and you see it in verses 20 and 21, 22, 23, is unity. Right? Really what he prays for, I mean, we've talked about God's glory, we've talked about the mission, we've looked at these different themes, but undergirding all of this, when Jesus prays for his followers, both the, the original 11 that he prayed for in their presence, and then through them to the rest of the church forever, is that they would be one, that they would be unified, that we would be one. Why? Why is that so much on Jesus' heart? We're going to talk about that. Um, I think it's, it doesn't take a whole lot of watching the news or watching your own life, for that matter, to realize that disunity is normal. Right? Just think about, uh, go ahead and make a list in your mind of all of the causes that you have seen championed, maybe you championed them yourself, just on Facebook this week. Just think about all the causes you've championed. Um, and how many of them, or that you've seen championed by others, how many of them had to do with unity? Usually, right, it, we're, we're really good at soaring, sowing uh, seeds of discord, sowing strife. Just think, if you're not a, a Facebooker, uh, think, about, think about the top three um, worst disagreements you've ever been in. Whether it was with one of your children, or with your spouse, or a close friend, right, Think about those, the, just the top three. Think about our political season. Think about where our culture currently is. Black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter. Disunity is natural. Disunity is normal. There is, uh, there's this epic scene, the epic scene in the movie Braveheart which I would argue is the greatest movie of all time. Um, the scene, right, that usually gets the most reference that, that gets played on, on, uh, on YouTube is, is the, the first big battle between the, uh, the, the, the people of Scotland, the army of Scotland, and, and the army of Great Britain, right? Uh, in the movie, it's called the Battle of Stirling. Uh, and what you have, right, if you can imagine, if you haven't seen the movie, on this kind of rolling green battlefield, you have all of you, you have kind of the scattered armies of these different Scottish clans milling around, just kind of waiting there. They're you know they've they've got their kilts on. They're in nothing but leather. That's their armor. You know they've got hatchets and pitchforks, uh, and their their clan chiefs are there, uh, and then. They're kind of milling around just waiting, and then the earth begins to shake. As over the hill marches the world-renowned, well-trained, well-armed army of Great Britain. And they've got archers, and they've got infantry, and then come the cavalry, right? The, the 300 heavy horse. These armored cavalry that just that just mow down opposing armies. 
And so they march in in blocks in their regiments and they begin to position themselves on the field of battle, well organized. And you can imagine, right, that these shepherds, these herdsmen, these farmers, they begin, they see that great army across the battlefield and they look at themselves, they look at the people standing next to them, they look at their clan chiefs who are really really kind of in this for themselves. They're not really united. They're probably going to make some kind of deal anyway. They start thinking about their families, and they start to leave, right? Because in the face of, it, in, in the face of an impossible enemy, an impossible task, self-preservation is so much better than unity, right? I look... I live in the mountains, guys. You know what? This isn't, this isn't all that bad. I can live under the thumb of, a, of an unruly king. That's fine. You know what? I just, I'm out of here. I'm done. And so they start heading home. So disunity comes naturally to all of us, right? It's, it's the default mode of your workplace. It's the default mode of your home. And it's been that way for a long time, that... If you go back to the beginning, if you go back to Genesis 3, right after Adam's sin, right after the fall of mankind, as God is challenging Adam, as he's confronting Adam, as he, and he asks him, how do you know that you're naked? Have you eaten the fruit that I told you not to eat? What's the first thing Adam does? Throws his wife under the bus. The woman you gave me. And actually points the finger at God too, right? So he's blame shifting in both directions. It's someone else's fault. We are good at disunity. We are good at discord, um, disagreement. It's a sign that we're broken off from God. We could say to divide is human and to bring together is divine. And so Jesus prays that his people would be different. So whether it's looking back over the course of history or whether you could just turn on the news and look at it today, see that the discord is normal. And Jesus prays for something different. He prays that his people would be different. Because here's what Jesus wants. Jesus wants scattered people brought together to taste and see the glory of God. Jesus wants to take scattered, sinful, rebellious people and he wants to bring them together so that they can see the glory and the goodness of God. What does that look like? How does that happen? Let's look at a few things here in John 17. Jesus says uh, there in verse 20, I don't ask for these only, I don't pray for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The first thing we need to realize is that unity is built on the truth about Jesus. Real unity, what Jesus prays for, is built on the truth about Jesus. Uh, and we have to say that because, because people have long complained about the division of the visible church. Right? In fact, you know, what's really given rise to the whole, uh, to the whole non-denominational movement is that younger people 
tend to see the word denomination and hear strife and disagreement, right? Denomination means disagreement, so I'm not going to be a part of that. I want to be part of a non-denominational church. Um, that, that's even led, right, to many churches that we just pull the title, we pull the denominational title kind of out of the name of the church so as not to create that sense of... Um, that, that negative sense. I mean, we've done it here at Grace Fellowship. We're a Presbyterian church, but that's just the, that's just the fine print, right? Because it's important to us, but we don't want it to be a barrier because that's a legitimate complaint. The disunity and division of the visible church is a legitimate complaint. But often the response to that complaint, the wrong response in my estimation, has been to find the lowest common denominator. Uh, and this, this goes back not just to the 90s, not just to the 80s, but goes back decades, generations, right, where basically what we do is we say, okay, well, people think that we're divided, and we are, so what is the least amount of things we can agree on in order to look like we're united, Right? What is, the, what is the lowest we can go? How little do we need to agree? How little can we stand for so that we look like we're standing together? What is the lowest common denominator? And so that's, that's not the right approach, right? Because as the old saying goes, when you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. The ecumenical movement, that's what that's called, right? This kind of a sense of, hey, let's kind of get over all of our disagreements about whether the Bible's true or not true, and let's just kind of love each other. That's not what Jesus is asking for, and that actually hasn't boded well for the institutional church. Okay? Um, to that, in response, we say that unity does not come at the expense of truth. Unity does not come at the expense of purity. Rather, it's built on purity. It's built on the truth. And the reason we know that is because Jesus says, when Jesus prays, he's praying for people who all believe the same thing. He's praying for people who have believed in his word, or more importantly, the word of the apostles. And what did the apostles believe? They believed Jesus' word. They kept Jesus' word. And so what you see going down throughout the church is not just kind of a warm, fuzzy, hey, we're all just going to get along, but rather a unity that is tied to the truth about Jesus. That as people believe that Jesus is the Son of God sent from heaven to save sinners, as they are united to Jesus, they are unified in that truth. Jesus is praying for people who keep his word, who believe his word. So real unity doesn't come at the expense of truth, but is rather built on the truth. We can sing the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ the Lord. There is no unity without purity. But the second thing is this, right? Not only, does unity, uh, is, not only is unity built on the truth about Jesus, but unity also flows from the Trinity. What in the world does that mean? Look at, uh, look at verse 11 in John 17. I'm no, um, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 21 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Verse 23, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Unity flows out of the Trinity. What in the world does that mean? Well, let's think about this for a second. And I think, here's, here's why this is important, okay? These... This is incredibly deep. This is incredibly rich. I mean, we're trying to kind of dig down into what we would call Trinitarian theology. Um, that, that seems like a really high mountain to climb. But if we don't go there, if we don't do it, then we really won't have unity. We won't have real, true unity. We need to figure out what exactly it is that Jesus is praying for when he says, just as you are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. How are the Father and the Son unified? What does their unity look like? Yes, they're one in being. That's true. I don't know if that's exactly what Jesus means for us here. Uh, Because we can't quite say that if we believe in Jesus, we become God. Okay, so that's not what Jesus means. They're one in love. Look at verse 23. They're one in being, uh, but they're also one in love. Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Verse 26, I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And so Father and Son are united in love. The heart of the Father is for the Son and is shown in the Son. The Son loves the Father so completely that He wants what the Father wants. But let's take it a step further. Yes, they're one in being. Yes, they're one in love. But ultimately, what Jesus is talking about here and what He's praying for us here is that we would be one in Purpose. Father and Son are one in purpose. That's John's message for the whole gospel. We hear it over and over and over again. That the Father sends the Son to save sinners out of the world. That is the purpose. That's the Father's purpose for the Son. And the Son obeys the Father at every turn. Right? They are united. They are one in their mission. They are one in purpose. They are one in what they want. They're on the same page. So let's bring all of that together. Because they are one in being, they are one in love. And because they are one in love, then they are one in what they want, which is to rescue sinners out of the world. And so Jesus is praying that we would be the same way, that we would want what God wants. Wants, that we would be unified with Jesus, who is unified with his Father, that we would have the same mind, the same heart, the same desires. There's an old Scottish proverb, apparently today's all things Scotland. Um, there's an old proverb in the, in the Church of Scotland, and it says this, If you're not fishing, you're fighting. If you're not fishing... You're fighting. What's it mean? It means that 
the less we are engaged in the purpose of God in the world, the more the church tears herself apart. The less that we engage our faces outward. We talked about this in Sunday school in relation to marriage. That, that the less we stand side by side, the more we turn inward and begin devouring ourselves. If you're not fishing, you're fighting. To lose sight of Jesus' mission to the world means that the church will tear herself apart. So to bring together those two points, unity happens, what Jesus is asking for, this unity, oneness, happens when Christians believe the same message, the word about Jesus, and stand side by side for the same message. And what happens when we do that, what happens when God works that unity in us is that unity points the world to Jesus. Look again at verse 21. I pray for these that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23 Actually, let's start in verse 22. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, united with us, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So, when the church is united in the gospel in Jesus, around the gospel and the purpose of God, the world takes notice. The world knows when we're on the same page, when our unity is expressed in love. Jesus says the world will know the love of God. Just flip back to John 13:34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, unity and love are the faces that make Jesus' body so appealing. Right? What Jesus is asking for, what Jesus is saying is that when the world sees the church united in love for each other around the gospel, they say, look how they love each other. Look at how well they get along. And that makes sense, right? In other words, the, the gospel of peace is hard to believe when there is no peace in the church. If the church is not practicing peace, then it renders our words of peace moot, vain. I can say all day long that God is love, but if I am unable to love my brothers and sisters, then my message rings hollow. I can try to sell you all day long on driving a Toyota, but if all I drive is a Chevy, you probably ain't going to be buying we are meant to be the embodiment of the things that Jesus, Jesus preaches. 
One encouraging note is that this unity is a work in progress, right? Jesus says in verse 23 that they may become perfectly one. That this is a work in progress, something we grow in, that we ought to be growing in unity. So how does that happen? How do we, how do we work this out? This is where we'll spend most of our times in, in growth groups this week and in, in your small groups. We'll talk about how to apply unity. What does unity look like in the body? But let's listen to these passages from the Apostle Paul just to see if this is a big deal in the rest of the New Testament. Colossians three twelve through 15. Put on men as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There's enough right there in those verses for us to apply. Philippians 1.27 Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let's look at Philippians 1.27 for just a second. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What do you think he means when he says that? When you hear a a manner of life worthy of the gospel, maybe I'm prone to think like, oh, well, I'm nice to everybody, I don't say bad words, and I don't let my kids see movies that are inappropriate. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. That's not the way Paul defines it. When he says live a life worthy of the gospel, he says here's what that looks like. You are standing side by side fighting for the gospel. That against all of the opposition that's coming in from the world, you have linked arms and you've said, we will stand for the message of Jesus. That is a life worthy of the gospel. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Brothers and sisters, we ought to strive for unity in the gospel. Unity, to be one even as the Father and the Son are one. The end of unity is glory. Look at verse 24. Jesus ends his prayer by looking to the end of all things. Father, I desire, I want that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That they may be with me where I am. This is the point of all of scripture. And it deserves a sermon all by itself. That they may be with me where I am. What was lost in the garden was unity. 
and communion with God, what Jesus regains is unity and communion with God. And so, Jesus wants us to experience. That's why his name is Emmanuel. We typically only say that at Christmas time. But that's really the promise of all of the Bible. God with us. Jesus comes to regain unity and communion that was lost. So, if disunity, the small cliques banding together around similar causes and, and loves and hobbies and hatreds, if that's normal, then Jesus offers us something abnormal. If disunity, if strife is natural, then what Jesus offers us is supernatural. As those Scottish peasants and farmers were leaving the field of battle, who should come riding up but William Wallace, this legend of a man that most of them had only heard about. And he comes to the front, and everybody's eyes are on him, and he confronts the the rival warring clan chieftains and basically dismisses them and turns around to the army and gives one of the most rousing speeches in movie history that I have memorized that I'm not going to say right now. And then he gets off his horse and he takes his place on the front line and he goes to battle. Disunity is normal. What creates unity is a champion who will come along and who will bind everyone together and lead them forward against an impossible threat and an impossible cause. Jesus creates the unity that he prays for. And he does it by going to the cross and reconciling God and man. He heals the division. And then, as if that were not enough, he then heals the division between man and man. Because if God has forgiven me, then I can forgive you. And you can forgive me. And so what Jesus offers you, friend, is peace. Peace with God and a unity of purpose that defines every other part of your life. Jesus invites you to be a part of something larger, a part of something better. Do you want that? Are you ready for that? That is what Jesus invites you to. Let's pray. Lord, so often when we talk about unity, it's so discouraging because we hear the complaint, we hear the gripe, and it's, uh, it's right that there is much disunity, there is much strife and discord within the church. That is not uh, simply our problem. It was the problem of the early church, too. 
to be honest, Lord Jesus, we've never really done this whole together thing very well. And so we ask for your help. Help us to bear with one another. Help us to forgive one another. Would you do in our midst something so supernatural that the fractured, divided, and scattered world with all of its causes and hobby horses would look at the church see her tethered to her one foundation to her Lord so committed to his good news so committed Lord God to your purpose in the world that they would say ah there is something There are people who love each other as different as they may be. May your love, Lord God, as just as Jesus prayed, may your love be in us. So that the world will know. We ask it for our own good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite the elders to come forward and